Hi, and welcome to episode 16 of Cavalier Cast, The Civil War in Words. This podcast explores everything and anything to do with the 17th century Wars of the Three Kingdoms. First, I'd just like to wish everyone all the best for 2021. And for any new listeners, you can listen to back episodes on your podcast platform. The last episode covered a golden figure which was found near the site of the 1645 Battle of Nearsby, and which could be a part of the lost Tudor crown jewels. For the Christmas special, I spoke to Tim Bentink, who played Tom Lacey in the BBC drama By the Sword Divided, and who talked to me about filming this iconic 80s show. In this episode, I'll be chatting to Dr Ismini Pels. She is a project manager at the University of Leicester and is leading the work investigating civil war petitions. If anyone has traced their family history, you'll appreciate how paper trails can often turn up fascinating insights into our ancestors. In 1837, formal registration of births, deaths and marriages began. But prior to this, we rely on basic church registers or any documents of officialdom. Even the absent-minded annotation on one of these can tell us so much. So when you consider the devastation of the mid-17th century, 200 years before civil registration, it's amazing to think that there are treasure troves of information available in the surviving civil war petitions. They were completed for those soldiers who were wounded during the civil wars or the widows of those that were killed. Usually, this period of history is told through the eyes of the leading participants of both sides. But the Petitions Project is bringing out the voice of the ordinary men and women who both fought and lived during this pivotal period in our history. Ismini will share some insights into various individuals from England and Wales and their personal experiences of the wars. She will also explain how you can access the records for yourself online. And who knows, perhaps this period in your ancestor's life has been recorded for posterity. So over to Ismini to tell us more. It's a pleasure to welcome you to Cavalier Castadier. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Can you tell me a little bit more about the Petitions Project and how it came about? I think that historians have known about the petitions that are at the heart of our project for for a number of years now so but there's never been a full nationwide survey of the petitions and so the aim of this project really was to uh, to take on that task the petitions themselves are, are really useful documents that can answer all sorts of questions about what it was like for ordinary men and women to live through the civil wars so uh, we can learn about the military service or the rank and file, the, the types of wounds they received and, and the medical care available to them. The petitions also contain information on the impact of bereavement on women and, and other family members and how veterans and widows look back upon and, and remember the civil wars. And by examining the sort of daily operation um, of the pension scheme, we can understand how claimants negotiated with authorities and how the authorities themselves coped with the enormous strains of supporting thousands of claimants and how political considerations and contested memories of the conflict 
affected the welfare provision that they made available to wounded soldiers and war widows. And also, finally, by mapping where the recipients of military welfare were from, we can learn more about wartime allegiances. And now, all these questions, as I say, have been touched upon by the local studies, but the big benefit of a nationwide study is we can learn about the impact of the human costs of the civil wars on England and Wales as a whole. And so this project was, was largely the idea of the principal investigator, Professor Andrew Hopper, who I know you've interviewed for Cavalier Cast recently. That's right. Um, and he put the project team together and led the grant application to the Arts and Humanities Research Council. And fortunately for us, that application was successful. And so here we are. And who else has been working on the project and how long has it been going now? So, so the project itself began in June 2017. So as I say, um, Andy Hopper at the University of Leicester is the principal investigator. And then we've got three other co-investigators. We've got Dr David Appleby from the University of Nottingham, Professor Mark Stowe of the University of Southampton, and Dr Lloyd Bone of the University of Cardiff. Um, then I'm, I'm based at Leicester as, as the project manager. We've had a number of research assistants as well who've joined us on the project at one time or another. Um, and they've been particularly invaluable to us in helping with some of the, the data entry work for the database behind the website. And then also we've been really lucky. We've had, we've had a number of project volunteers who've helped us with tasks such as the modernisation of the petition transcriptions so that they're accessible to a public audience, as well as having the original transcriptions for academic researchers. Um, and what work is involved in, in the project? So uh, I suppose the core task of the project is really to uh, gather the images and transcriptions of, of all the surviving petitions and also the certificates that supported the petitions. And these are kept in archives all over the country. Um, and we're collecting all of those, as well as calendared records of where pen pension payments were made from either court order books or from treasurer's accounts. And basically, we've divided up the country into five areas. Um, Andy is looking at the north. Uh, Dave is taking on the Midlands and East Anglia. Mark is looking at the southwest. Uh, Lloyd is taking care of Wales and the marches, and I've got responsibility for London and the South East. It's a bit like the rule of the major generals, we've divided it all up. Um, and the archivists have been uh, fantastic in supporting us, and they've provided um, all the high quality images of the documents that we use um, on the project website. And as I mentioned, then the, the um, investigators produce the transcriptions and our volunteers help to modernise them. And then, yeah, myself and the research assistant basically upload all of these to the project website, which, if you don't know, is, is freely accessible and can be found at www.civilwarpetitions.ac.uk. Excellent. Oh, that's great. And it's a really good website. I've, I've had a look at it as well. Very interesting and, and easy to use. Can you tell me a little bit more about the petitions themselves? Yeah, of course. So wounded soldiers had actually been able to claim uh, pensions from the state since 1593. But in this during the Civil War in October 1642, Parliament reaffirmed their commitment to this legislation for those who were, had been in their service. 
and they also the thing that was particularly new about um the civil war was they entitled widows and orphans to claim pensions too um in 1647 royalists were officially barred from accessing the pension scheme and in return parliamentarians were prohibited from claiming pensions from 1662 onwards so in order to claim these pensions wounded soldiers and war widows had to submit a petition to their local court or quarter sessions which were held in their home county and at these quarter sessions the justices of the peace would decide whether to, to grant the claim or not now very few petitioners wrote their petitions themselves as most would have been illiterate so they employed the use of scribes and these would be people such as local ministers schoolmasters literate neighbours or, or perhaps even the clerk of the court themselves. So we have to be a bit careful when we're making claims about what petitioners said, as it's important to remember that the scribes may have inserted certain passages or, or phrased things in a particular way to, you know, to make the petition as convincing as possible. Sometimes these petitions were accompanied by a certificate. And this could be uh, from a soldier's commanding officer testifying to the petitioner's war service. Uh, it could be from a medical practitioner who outlined the seriousness of the petitioner's wounds. Or it could be from the local community who confirmed that the petitioner was you know, a worthy person for a pension. And so we have, have all of these documents. And then on top of that, we have the, the order books from the court where they note the outcome of a petition and the account books of the court's treasurer who uh, kept lists of payments made to the pensions. Um, and now, as I say, most of these petitions were submitted directly to the quarter sessions, although some claimants appealed to funds under the control of other authorities, and this could include things like borough corporations, um, the county committee set up to coordinate Parliament's war efforts, uh, military governors, or, or even uh, directly to leading figures such as Oliver Cromwell or Charles II. You mentioned there that from 1642, Parliament was open for petitions. What about the king? Did, did he mention anything about recommencing, you know, war widows or orphans? Yes, I mean, there is actually the king issues a proclamation in um, uh, the spring of 1643. So about six months after the parliamentarian one of October 1642 and essentially it's doing the same thing he's reaffirming that Elizabethan pension scheme saying that his soldiers are entitled to claim this relief and encouraging um justices of the peace um to grant pensions to the soldiers and also he he's encouraging um almshouses to give places to wounded soldiers to live um, although, interestingly, um, the king doesn't mention anything about widows or orphans in that proclamation. So he's very much sticking to the Elizabethan scheme. He hasn't extended it at all. Um, the problem really for the royalists is a lot of the quarter sessions, they fall into abeyance during the Civil War. They don't meet. And then when they start meeting again, there's real pressure from the um centre from Parliament and this is where you get the 1647 ordinance that forbids royalists from claiming those county pensions so yes the royalists right. literally get frozen out in the cold. So how many petitions have you come across so far? 
Um, so at the moment, we have gathered a grand total of 2,552 documents. Um, and we're currently wow. that's from 39 of the 54 counties that we have to research. Now, obviously, some counties, for example, Rutland or Berkshire, they don't have any surviving material, which is obviously quite disappointing. Um, survival for documents from Wales is, is particularly bad. Um, although the Welsh counties where we do have surviving evidence, uh, such as Denbyshire or Carnarvonshire, they actually have some of our uh, biggest uh, individual collections. So um, they, they actually provided quite good individual um, case studies, as it were. But then on top of all of that, we also have all the petitions submitted to central authorities, such as the Crown or parliamentary committees, and these are all held in the National Archives. It's nice to hear that Wales, um, the petitions there, provide quite a big part of it, because I think quite a lot when you read about the civil wars, they really omit Wales to an extent. Um, I suppose gloss over and say, well, a lot of the battles weren't in Wales. Uh, Wales was just really a, a huge royalist recruiting ground, at least initially. Yes, definitely. I mean, that's something obviously um, that Mark and Lloyd have been have written about in the past, have been particularly concerned about. But like you say, I mean, just there might not be any of the perhaps the more famous battles happened in Wales. But like you mentioned, it, it's a massive recruiting ground, particularly for the Royalist Army. And we know that the bulk of the Royalist infantry are recruited in Wales. So, um, and that comes through, you know, with all these petitions, you see the impact of that recruitment. And they're coming back with these wounds or, you know, the widows have lost their husbands fighting the fighting. But you also get a little bit of insight into some of the politicking. So, for example, a chap called John Poyer. So he starts off as a parliamentarian, but he's one of these people who becomes disillusioned with the with the cause and effectively uh, defects to the royalist cause and, and as part of the Second Civil War. And uh, his, his widow uh, submits uh, a couple of petitions at the Restoration as well. And it really reveals some of the, the complex po- politics that surround the Civil Wars. Is there a particularly hardest hit county, would you say? It's difficult to say because obviously we're slightly you know lack of evidence doesn't doesn't necessarily mean a, a lack of impact if that yeah. makes sense as I say our coverage can be a bit patchy for example some of the Midland counties there's a lot of um you know we know that they're the counties that are caught up a lot in the fighting you know the armies are constantly marching through them so um Dave looked into the Staffordshire and that's a county that seems to get quite caught up for example when uh, Charles II has been beaten at the Battle of Worcester and he's on the run, there's forces, the troops from Staffordshire are being tasked with, you know, trying to track down the remnants of his army. Um, And at the same time, it's clearly a a big recruiting base for uh, the army in Ireland as well. So you can see men being conscripted a lot and the impact that has. So, yeah, when when the evidence is there, it's quite clear that some of these counties are quite badly hit by it all. What's the date range of the petitions that you've looked at so far? Um, it's really quite broad. So our, our first petitions, they date from, from the earliest days of the war. Um, we have some petitions from women whose husbands were sent to Ireland in July 1642. So, you know, right at the very beginning. Our latest surviving petition 
and it dates from 1710 and comes from a main soldier called Henry Norton, who lived near Hexham in Northumberland. However, we do have the payment record for a main soldier from Aylesbury in Buckinghamshire called William Lever, and he received a pension until 1718, so years after the end of the wow. Civil Wars. So, I mean, it's quite amazing to hear the ordinary men and women describe how they were affected by the war, um, because it's the lives of the wealthy or the commanders that are usually the narratives that drive history. Can you tell me a selection of the petitions that stand out for you? I think one of the, one of the petitions that stood out for me um, recently was, was that of Richard Parker of Wellington and Somerset, and he'd been in the Parliamentarian Garrison of Wellington, and his petition is just incredibly dramatic. He'd been taken prisoner by the royalists and had tried to escape, but he was recaptured and so, so sentenced to be hanged. And the punishment was just being carried out and he'd got as far as been cast off the ladder when he recalls that God in his mercy to your petitioner broke the rope and so therefore he, he was lying for a long time dead in the place Yet Providence restored your petitioner to life again. So this dramatic moment, um, although he does admit, in fairness, that the experience had left him ever since in a very weak condition, which I, I think it would, to be fair. Yeah. Um, a good example of the after effects of the civil wars that we just touched on and how, you know, for many people, the repercussions continued long, long after the fighting is the petition of Elizabeth Bradley of Horbury in the West Riding of Yorkshire. So her husband had been in royalist service and um, he'd received a pension as a main soldier. But by 1681, so we're talking more than 20 years after the restoration by this point, she petitioned the court of sessions that her husband was, she says, so troubled by his wartime experiences and also the financial losses he'd suffered for his commitment to the royalist cause that she says she was forced to have one to look after him because he was prone to wandering and she was worried that he was likely to basically do himself harm. Um, if I'm honest, though, uh, my my favourite petition of all is, is that of Elizabeth Carey. Now, now, she was a gentlewoman and so not really one of the ordinary people that you're asking about, but her husband had been killed in royalist service and she received a pension directly from Charles II. However, she petitioned the king for her pension to be transferred to her son after her death. And she, in in the course of when she's uh, writing her, or the petition's being written, she, she says that she's sure that Charles would remember her son as he'd followed your majesty to Oxford and was there bitten by your majesty's dog Cupid, as your majesty may happily call to mind. And I just think that's a brilliant little detail. Oh, wow. Yeah, that is something that would absolutely be lost to history if it wasn't for that petition, isn't it? And from, from your work so far, what percentage of, of petitioners were assisted? Difficult question, that one. Um, it's very difficult to assess the, the percentage of petitioners who were assisted. Mm. Is By and large, we, we only have the petitions from successful claimants. And the order books kept by the court generally only record successful applications too. I mean, not always, but in the in the main. We do occasionally come across petitions that are endorsed with things like um, not ordered 
or entries in the order books where it specifically states that a petition is denied. But what we do know, if we if we accept the projected number of casualties for the civil wars that have, that have been given by the likes of Ian Gentle, say, we can certainly conclude that only a very small proportion of those entitled to financial relief actually received any. And we think it seems that many people were put off from claiming pensions, either perhaps through ignorance about the scheme or um, the social stigma of being reliant on state welfare. So many petitioners, they, they claim to have done all they could to survive financially before claiming a pension. And they certainly make out that they're very reluctant to claim this welfare that's available to them. Um, and what types of assistance did the, the few that got it appear to get? So most commonly, um, petitioners could get one of two forms. They could either receive a gratuity, which is a one-off payment, or, or a pension, which would be um, paid in quarterly instalments throughout the year for as long as the court ordered and hopefully for the rest of their lives. Um, the gratuities could be as little as perhaps five shillings, um, and these tend to be sums which were typically paid as a token amount, often to widows actually, to, to get rid of them basically, and to order them not to trouble the court anymore. Um, However, some gratuities could be much larger sums, uh, perhaps as much as, say, £10. And these were often given in lieu of arrears of pay owed or um, as a lump sum instead of a pension. As for the pensions themselves, um, they, they typically range from about £1 to £4 per year, with £2 a year being the most common. Now, it's been calculated in this period that a labourer with a family would need about £10 a year to live. So you can see that the pensions were only really a contribution towards living costs and that pensioners would certainly need to find additional sources of income from elsewhere. The biggest pension that we've come across so far was for a royalist widow from the West Riding of Yorkshire called Grace Portington. And she received £20 a year by direct order from Charles II. And her pension is particularly generous when you consider that only two other royalist widows in the county received pensions. And Portington's husband actually survived his civil war services and actually died afterwards from a monkey bite. <laughs> um, however, uh, Grace Portington was a gentlewoman and... Ironically, the higher up the social scale a claimant was, the more likely they were to get a higher pension, because higher pensions would help maintain their position in society and therefore the social order. Um, but interestingly, some claimants didn't uh, seek financial payments as such, but other things that could help them earn a living. Um, so, for example, uh, John Baxter of Great Birthstead in Essex he asked for a loom and other tools that would help him earn, earn a living as a weaver. Whilst uh, several main soldiers from uh, Leicester, they petitioned the Borough Corporation to be allowed to practice trades within the city without paying the customary fines that you'd normally expect to pay to be admitted to that trade. Yeah, that that's interesting as well, isn't it? Sometimes if maybe they've lost their trade because of a wound, um, they can they can get equipment to take on a new trade. Yes, exactly. Well, there are examples where people have asked for licenses for alehouses, for example, okay. or um, uh, they can't. They perhaps they've trained as um, 
a tailor and they, they can't be a tailor but they asked to be allowed to be a botcher, which means someone who mends clothes. So they, you know, scale back what they're uh, they're trained to do, or yeah, take on a new profession altogether. I, I like the name of that one, a botcher. Botcher, <laughs> <terrible>. yeah, definitely. <laughs> and are there any, any trends or patterns you see, maybe in terms of the religious or political allegiance of the claimants? Interestingly, and this might surprise actually some people, um, religion doesn't seem to play a particularly big role in the petitions. So um, sometimes uh, providence is invoked, in, particularly in the widow's petitions, when they say things like, it pleased God to take away my husband's life. Or when soldiers are talking about disease and they say things like, it pleased God to afflict me with a disease. Although providence tends not to be used when soldiers are talking about being wounded. And there are not many cases where soldiers use overtly godly sentiments, um, which I say is perhaps surprising, really. Um, sometimes the petitions invoke Christian compassion um, when they're address- addressing the justices of the peace. In terms of political allegiances, um, as you might expect, many petitioners, they mention their loyalty to their particular cause, but it's always difficult to know how sincere this was. Um <laughs> And I'm sure many did feel an attachment to the cause in which they fought. But of course, they're trying to emphasise their worthiness for a pension. So, you know, they're saying in many cases, you know, what the justices would want to hear. Yeah. And what variety of wounds would you say the petitioners had? So the most common type of wounds that our petitioners had uh, were gunshot wounds. Um, And this is probably because musketeers made up the majority of the infantry uh, and firearms were used in the cavalry as well, of course. Um, and there seems to be little protection against gunshot wounds. And most surgeons at the time agreed that gunshot wounds were the most difficult to heal. So it's not surprising they're still mentioning these wounds many years later. Um, there's a fair number of injuries caused by bladed weapons, such as pikes or swords. Although pole axes seem to have caused some of the most devastating wounds. Many soldiers complained of conditions that they refer to as things like coldness or or numbness, which they received from exposure, either from lying on the ground during sieges or during imprisonment. They do mention diseases, although infuriatingly, they tend to not to be too specific about this. So it's very difficult to work out what's going on there. Um, We have accidents, of course. for example, I think there are two petitioners from Warwickshire who uh, suffer injuries to their hands when the mechanisms on their muskets malfunction. Um, and then as soldiers get older, the effects of their wounds obviously get worse and they often talk about the effects of ageing and what this has on their body. Although perhaps the most intriguing injuries that occasionally get mentioned are the potential psychological injuries that soldiers seem to have suffered. So, for example, John Cornelius of Bishop Stainton in Devon said that he'd lost the use of his reason by his grief, whilst um, the inhabitants of Haslingdon in Lancashire petitioned the court of sessions about a veteran called Rafe Rishton, who they said was distracted and distempered. So those petitions are yeah, really interesting, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And do they show how disabled soldiers reintegrated into society after their wounds? Yeah, there there's certainly some hints, definitely. 
Many communities seem to have been quite sympathetic to the soldiers who returned from the wars, and they, they tried to help them get pensions, um, suggesting that they integrated quite well in some cases. So, for example, um, there are nine neighbours who petitioned who, in, who endorsed the petition of Roland Harrison of Whitby in the North Riding of Yorkshire. And they say that they've known Harrison for many years and they've heard all about his service to the king and they believe his claims and they think he was deserving of a pension because they say he's always been a laborious, painstaking man. Although, again, we have to be slightly sceptical about the motivations of neighbours who supported petitions. Because it was always in the community's interest that a particular petitioner got a pension as it relieved the immediate community of having to provide for them through through either charity or poor relief. And it puts them onto the county pension scheme. So it, it widens the burden much more broadly. Um, in some cases, it, it's clear that the soldiers struggle to integrate back into society. So we've got one chap, uh, John Jews, a studly in Warwickshire, and he complains to the court of sessions that the local parish officials refused to pay him welfare. And he says that they upbraided him with his service, telling him he'd made a foolish voyage and he should now suffer for it. And, and they don't show him any compassion or relieve him. And so presumably it was particularly difficult for veterans whose local community and the, fish, the officials there had supported the opposite side to them. I think it would have been a lot more difficult for them to integrate back. Do the petitions show how maimed royalists fared during Cromwell's protectorate? Yeah, certainly at least partly. So um, some of the petitions that were submitted by royalists after the restoration, and they explain how they're forced to survive through the years of the Commonwealth and protectorate, mainly by the charity of neighbours. So, um, for example, Michael Powell of Wrexham and Denbyshire maintained that his wife was constrained to wander about the town to collect the charity of all well-disposed people. Um, others seem to have lived off their parents, um, and we imagine that many will have turned to parish poor relief. And it would be really interesting to compare the records from parish poor relief during the interregnum with our records for the pension scheme at the Restoration to see if there are any matches between those claiming parish relief in the 1650s who subsequently become royalist pensioners. And, and likewise, I suppose you can compare our records of parliamentarian pensioners with those claiming parish relief after 1662. Um, so to see if um, you know people are crossing over from poor relief when they can't claim a pension to having a pension when they're entitled to do so. Um, interesting, we do have uh, some pensioners who were from the other side who get a pension when you think they shouldn't be able to. So, for example, we've got a main soldier from Durham called John Tinkler, and he was in such a bad way that he was allowed to have a pension all the way through the interregnum, even though he's a royalist. And he, But he'd lost both his arms and both his eyes at the siege of Hartlepool. And his neighbours say that he'd become a very sad spectacle. So even though he shouldn't have been entitled to a pension during the Commonwealth, he's in such a bad way that, you know, they feel he really ought to be supported. Yeah, he can understand why that one was granted. Definitely. And I think, I mean, even again, it comes back to that modern resonance. You know, a lot of welfare is still incredibly political. And so we have to, I think, have to be quite 
aware of all these political nuances that are operating as well. And as it's all, the pension scheme is very much caught up in the memory of the civil wars and contested allegiances and things like that. And have the petitions changed what we know about sieges or battles or maybe challenged any previously accepted assumptions? Some of the most interesting findings uh, was discovered by our our co-investigator, David Appleby, and he was researching the petitions from Nottinghamshire and he kept coming across lots of references to Shelford House, which was a a little-known assault on a royalist garrison in 1645. And this really piqued his interest. And he was able to uncover the details of a massacre, which had subsequently been covered up. So Shelford House was an outpost of the Royalist stronghold at Newark. And it was garrisoned by the Queen's Regiment, which was mainly comprised of European Catholics. And the regiment had a bit of a reputation for savagery. um, And it was bad even amongst Royalists. Even Royalists regarded this regiment, you know, not very well. And so you can imagine how they are portrayed in in the parliamentarian press. Um, Now, the parliamentarians who were laying assault to the garrison, they'd taken a bit of a pasting in their attempt to capture it. And so a combination of both revenge for dead comrades and anti-Catholic and anti-foreign sentiment led to a massacre of about uh, 160 of the garrison when it was eventually uh, stormed successfully. Now, it's not really that surprising that the parliamentarians would want to cover up this event. But it's particularly interesting, I think, that the royalists tried to hush up this episode too. Um, the royalists seem to have been uneasy over the reputation of the regiment and their use of unpopular foreign troops. And so they too quashed attempts to draw attention to this massacre after the restoration. So it was a cover up from both sides. And in the last episode, Professor Hopper mentioned that petitioners had to present themselves in front of local officials to prove their injuries. Um, And he mentioned one royalist still had a musket ball in his neck 50 years after Marston Moore. Um, Are there any other cases like that which show that perhaps surgery wasn't as poor as what we might think? Definitely. This is something I'm I'm particularly interested in. So um, when, when petitioners are specific about their injuries, We've, we've mapped the location of these wounds onto basically a big picture of the human body. And now famous contemporary surgeons such as the royalist Richard Wiseman and the parliamentarian James Cook, and they agreed that wounds located on the peripheries of the body, that is the arms, legs, hands and feet, were the easiest to cure, whilst those located in the head or t- torso were much more difficult to treat. However, with, with numerous examples where soldiers suffered you know, really quite horrific wounds to the head or torso and survived, which suggests that the surgeons who treated them were very skilled. So, for example, uh, we, we have a George Jennings of uh, Artox... I can never say this right, uh, Artoxica, <laughs> from Staffordshire, anyway. <laughs> and he had his skull uh, severely cut whilst uh, fighting for the Commonwealth Army in Ireland. And he described how the surgeon helped mend the wound by using a piece of silver to, to cover the breach in his head. So again, really quite dramatic. Um, and then we have another chap, uh, another one of my favourites is John Latch from the Parliamentarian Garrison of Gloucester. And he's involved in a, a skirmish at Painswick and uh, he is attacked by uh, royalist horsemen and they ride all over him with their horses. 
and he gets, as you can imagine, really quite horrific wounds. And he describes how his kidneys were rent from his loins. And so I imagine that putting him back together must have been a task requiring, you know, the utmost skill. And what's interesting is many of our petitioners seem to have suffered severe and multiple injuries, um, sometimes returning to service in between injuries. And then they lived to a ripe old age, um, although obviously I'm sure they had chronic pain, but they're surviving for yeah many years after the event. You mentioned earlier about... Um the petition's sure how a soldier's death might leave his widow and family in dire circumstances. Um, can you share a few examples of the petitions from widows? Yes, of course. So some of the widows' petitions, they're particularly heartbreaking. So um, there's one from a parliamentarian widow called Elizabeth Glover from Nottinghamshire. And she said that she'd, she'd formerly lived in an honest rank amongst her neighbours well-beloved according to the simplicity of a well-deserving woman. But following the death of her husband, and she describes him as her chief sucker and comfort. So, you know, really quite touching. Um, she says that uh, she and her child are likely to pine and starve, um, which is, yeah, really heartbreaking. Um, we've got another parliamentarian widow called Elizabeth Hewood from Manchester. And she describes how her landlord had threatened to turn her and her disabled child out of the house because she can no longer afford the rent after her husband's death. Um, and I think it's worth mentioning that, that many royalist widows would have been in a particularly bad situation if they obviously can't claim welfare during the Commonwealth. But even after the restoration, when, when they're entitled to claim welfare, a very few seem to have even been granted gratuities and the sums they're given are, are much more meagre compared to their parliamentarian counterparts. The petitions as well have been quite helpful with genealogy. So, I mean, do you find that they can often allow people to track their ancestors from battle to battle? Yeah, we hope so. Um, we hope that uh, genealogists and, and just those that you know, tracing their family history will, will find the website useful. So, I mean, it's possibly one of the largest, um, you know, single contributions to, you know, ordinary surnames and, and place name data, perhaps since the creation of websites such as Ancestry. Um, and obviously, our website has the benefit that it's, it's free to use. Um, so, we currently have profiles for exactly 8,278 people on the website and we've got another 3,000 or so in the database ready for publication and I would expect this total to, to double by the end of the project. Now most petitioners are locatable by their place of residence and many give the names of their, their spouses or, or other family members so this hopefully could be quite useful for people trying to you know track ancestors um, and, under, and not even just the petitioners themselves, but as I mentioned, civilians often support petitioners uh, by endorsing their petitions. And so this can give glimpses of whole local communities. Um, you, you can certainly, in some cases, track a soldier from, from battle to battle. So uh, we have one chap uh, who's called Don Howells, he's from Hereford, and he noted he'd had a particularly long career. He noted he'd fought at uh, is it battles at Edge Hill, Brentford, First Newbury, Naseby, and he'd also fought at the sieges of Bristol, Sirencester, and Hereford. So he'd had, yeah, quite a long and yeah productive military career. 
brilliant to be able to pin people down at locations like that in in this particular period. Uh, and some of the Civil War petitions um, that you've you've had have been acted out on stage recently by the Royal Shakespeare Company. Um, so can you tell me about that event? Certainly. So, so we're really lucky uh, to receive some money from the Economic and Social Research Council. So, so a group of actors from the RSE, uh, they produced it was a really wonderful 30-minute film which dramatised petitions from main soldiers and war widows contemporary to Shakespeare's time. So we did use a few of the Civil War petitions from our project, but we tried to use as many petitions as we could from the, the earlier pension scheme that had operated during the Elizabethan and Jacobean period. And this film was screened online as part of the Festival of Social Science back in November uh, to a public audience. And we, it was accompanied by some commentary from Dr. Daniel Blackie, who is a disability historian from Helsinki University, and Dr. Kelsey Ridge, who was formerly of the Shakespeare Institute of Stra- in Stratford-upon-Avon. And then following this, we, we had a long discussion about the, the themes raised in the films, you know, surrounding disability and the treatment of veterans, both past and present. And this was involved all of the actors and we had representatives from the armed forces, veterans, charities, people from the museum and heritage sector, as well as members of the public who were very much invited to chip in. Um, and you, this film is now available on our website, so you can see it there, um, just the 30-minute film. Do you have any further plans for the website? Yeah, so perhaps one of our biggest plans, really, is we, we're trying to develop educational resources for school teachers. So we've been really lucky to work with, we've got an advisory group of teachers and we work with them in um, annual workshops and we correspond with them throughout the year. And we've been working on developing lesson plans and resources and activities for different educational levels. So we've currently published some materials for the GCSE History Module, uh, Medicine Through Time. And we're just about to upload some materials for Key Stage 3, which have been kindly developed for us by Denise Greeny of the Learning and Participation Team at the National Civil War Centre. And then we also have plans to develop materials for those teaching the Civil Wars at at A-level as well. Oh, that's great to hear. I mean, back when when I was at school, uh, we went through all of the kings and queens in the period from the conquest and we got closer to the civil war and i remember thinking yes it's, it's coming up it's coming up soon <laughs> and then we got to the gunpowder plot and then it stopped <laughs> and, and then we jumped <laughs> to the industrial revolution so yeah it, it's it's brilliant to hear that um that schools are involved and you know the work that you you've, you're uncovering um is is going to play a part in education as well and do you have any plans for any more books as well? Um, so I'm working on a, a very exciting project at the moment um, with a, a team of uh, researchers from across Europe and also the United States, where we're looking, we're comparing military welfare in um, various different European countries during this period. So we're looking between about 1500 and 1800. And um, we're comparing the military and, and, and naval welfare that's available. Um, and we cover, um, you know, France, Spain, uh, the Netherlands, Sweden, Denmark, uh, someone writing from Austria, 
the various German states. So all oh, over gosh. looking at just comparing the different developments. And so, so actually that's enabled us to put some of um, the, the Civil War petitions uh, information in, into its European context as well. So that's been really interesting. And we're, that we've got a contract to, um, or I've got a contract to publish that with uh, Routledge um, and that will involve a chapter from all of these contributors and then I'll edit it. So we've got this great comparative approach. So we've got that project. And also I have been asked to write volume one of the history of the British Army, basically the 17th century up and then up until 1715. So looking at the origins of the British Army as we know it today. So I really enjoy writing that. And you've written a book, haven't you, about uh, Philip Skippens or one of the overshadowed commanders of the war. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yes, certainly. So, so Skippen is commander of all the infantry in the New Model Army, and he'd been in the Earl of Essex as a commander of the Earl of Essex's infantry prior to that. So he's really uh, he's a prominent um, individual at the time. He's also an MP. He sits on the Cromwellian Council of State. And, he'd, and also he'd, he'd fought in the Netherlands and in the Palatinate and possibly also in Denmark prior to the Civil War. So he had an incredibly long military career, quite a prominent political career. But for whatever reason, he'd never really been written about, which was really surprising. And so I became interested in him through my connections to the Honourable Artillery Company. So Skippen had been uh, captain of, uh, sorry, Captain General of the Artillery Company uh, just prior and then during the, the Civil Wars. And I, I just couldn't believe that nothing had been written on Skippen. So I decided to write on that topic and, um, yeah, just published the book on him. Well, thank you very much, Ismini. What a fascinating project, one which really allows you to get to the heart of the Civil War like never before. Be sure to check out the petitions website, www.civilwarpetitions.ac.uk. And if you discover any ancestors, it will be great to hear from you. You can keep in touch with me on Twitter at 1642Author or on facebook.com forward slash Mark Turnbull author. I hope you enjoyed this episode and thanks for listening.